Jason McLean's Culture Podcast a thrill for the week of August 28th. On this week's show, Pop Goes the Podcast. We're doing a special episode on pop music, starting with an interview with the brilliant musician Chili Gonzalez. He'll tell us about why pop music is deeper than you think, and what The Weeknd and an Austrian composer have in common. Then, Carly, maybe. We had Max Merton's number, so we called on him to talk about Emotion, Carly Rae Jepsen's latest album. Finally, the three of us end off the episode by telling you what our songs of the summer were. I'm Adrian. I'm Emma. And I'm Julia. And this is The Thrill. Sometimes pop music gets a rep for being fluffy or simplistic, and even admitting you like it is all hushed guilty pleasure. Like, I love Katy Perry songs. Like it's shameful. Well, there's no shame necessary, because beyond taste, we may even be hardwired to enjoy these seemingly simplistic ditties. You think I'm pretty without any makeup on. Okay, sorry, it's just stuck in our head. So with us today, we have a man who goes by the name of Chili Gonzalez, a Canadian musician and a musical polymath who believes that what makes a good pop song and what makes for a good classical piece of music is largely the same thing. Gonzalez is pretty bonafide when it comes to this topic. Not only is he a classically trained pianist who recently released an album of chamber music, he's also got producer credits and his own collaborations with Daft Punk, Drake, and Feist. And he's released a symphonic rap album and an 80s soft pop uh, throwback album. And he once held the Guinness uh, World Record for the longest concert by a solo artist, 27 hours. That's cool. Gonzalez is also known for his pop music masterclass videos where he breaks down the melodic, harmonic, and rhythmic logic behind a pop tune, like Daft Punk's Get Lucky or Iggy Azalea's Fancy, to show how they're just as satisfying for trained musicians as the regular listener, and how we're all kind of hardwired for a good earworm. So this is classic Daft Punk, and it's also classic of them to only use these four chords for a whole six-minute pop hit. So you might think that's a bit lazy or unimaginative, but a truly clever pop musician can do so much with so little. And if I think about classical music and this kind of technique, it reminds me of uh, an Italian thing called the ostinato. And this was just a way of having a bass line, just like our Daft Punk bass line, play through everything, whole song. And it's here, what happens in the right hand, or in this case, in the voice of Pharrell Williams, which really determines the structure of the song. And we've got him with us today. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. So, uh, Gonzo, why don't you tell us what makes a good pop song? Well, I think that the je ne sais quoi, if I may uh, come up bilingual right out of the gate, <laughs> um, this is what keeps us interested in pop. And if it were easy to really quantify the pop formula, uh, then everyone could write a pop song and everyone would be a millionaire um, flying in business class. Uh, and that's not the case, thankfully. Thankfully, we have you know, mysterious moments where something that maybe shouldn't work somehow works. So, um, you know, I like to feel something before I ever analyze something. Analysis is only interesting when you've already, I think, felt something. Uh, so I tend to wait until I have a moment of sort of pop inspiration, and then that will lead me to sort of want to know what's behind it and how is that then connected to sort of other tools and music that have just stood the test of time, you know? So it might be that I'll be listening to, a, you know, I don't know, the latest song by The weekend. You know, I can't feel my face. And I'll be like, oh, interesting how he's, he's kind of syncopating. I can't feel my face. And all of a sudden, it just 
calls to mind all these like trumpet calls from from like Bruckner symphonies and the idea of syncopation and and sort of always being ahead of the beat and the idea that you can with rhythm represent musically sort of like the idea of someone who's like stumbling and getting ahead of themselves. And uh, these are great moments, but it always comes first just by sort of having it in your head and being addicted to it. And then you want to find out what's behind it. I love that you, when you listen to that weekend song, come up with all of those the, those musical thoughts, the, the idea of uh, like syncopating and, you know, Bruckner and all that stuff. But it's so often when people listen to pop music, the often they don't really give it that kind of uh, deep thought. They often think, oh, pop music, whatever, that's easy and simple to make. Why do you think there is that odd stigma for specifically pop music? Well, it, it, it perhaps is easy and simple to make. And, and, and I think that's maybe what's great about, about pop music. It is popular music. And so there's something that's always been very reduced about it. Um, and yeah, I, I would just say that it doesn't matter if The weekend even knows he's using something called syncopation. You know, I'm using terms that I learned in a textbook because I had that education. I just think you need the attitude of a student. And you, you have to be sort of a, you, you're on a quest if you're, a, if you're a, a real musician, you're on a kind of quest to find your voice. So when, when The weekend is like sitting there singing and coming up with that, that catchy chorus of I Can't Feel My Face, it's doubtful that he's thinking, I would like to deploy the common technique of syncopation as outlined in the fanfare. No, he's not thinking that way. Mm-hmm. He has a system of music in his own head, and syncopation, whether he knows what it's called or not, sort of is something that's in his arsenal, something that he can kind of um, call up when he needs that creates a certain feeling, a certain urgency. That's what syncopation tends to do, because syncopation tends to create this feeling that you're sort of getting ahead of yourself, almost stuttering. Mm-hmm. And uh, so whether he comes by it instinctually or whether I'm giving you the name for it as a sort of professor character coming afterwards, that's not the point. You know, what's interesting to me is that Bruckner and The Weeknd were equally attracted to this method to create musical urgency. That's the point. The point to me is what's in common between whatever you call, uh, you know, the music of the past and classical music, whether you rate it as something of higher cultural value or not. And today's pop music, whether you rate that as having lower cultural value or not, that's kind of not the point. The point is the music itself, the musical tools, rarely change. And and what we call styles of music are actually things related to social meaning and technology. That's sort of what creates a style of music. What instruments are being used in electronic music, uh, drum machines, synthesizers, sequencers, or in hip-hop, you know, turntables and samplers. Um, and, of course, huge social movements to accompany both those styles of music. I happen to love both those styles of music because they represent what I think the best of today. And so I've done collaborations in both of those worlds. Um, and, um, you know, to know and fascinated to sit next to someone like Daft Punk in the studio and watch how they put together music. In some ways, all the tools are different and the social meaning of it is so different. But then again, it's the same 12 notes, isn't it? So... I'm a musical humanist. I like to focus on what makes all the styles more similar and, and what makes the music of eras more similar rather than look for differences, which in the end are social or technological. Have there been any pop songs that surprised you where you heard them and you thought, this isn't something I would see as having been a, a big hit? 
well, it, it, it's it's strange in, in in the sort of you know everybody likes a winner, um, and uh, you know you, you kind of have this almost knee-jerk, almost capitalistic way of looking at the sort of meritocracy of pop music. Like, well, you know, a million insert band name here fans can't be wrong. There's this sort of attitude that success is its own validator. Um, it, it, it's very hard when you hear a song, even an annoying song. You know, I think of that that Tub Something song by Chumbawamba, you know, Get Knocked Tub Down and I Get yeah. Up Again. Like, that's, a, that's a really annoying song. No one likes it. I love but it. I think everyone understands why it became a hit, you know. So, like I said, it, it just hindsight is twenty twenty, and if something becomes a hit, you tend to just, even if it seems like an anomaly, it, you just sort of internalize it. And, and um, yeah, there are such things as novelty hits as well, which again are more like a more like flukes, you know. But I can't really speak to that. You know, I can't really talk about some, you know, the Macarena or something like that. I don't know. Um, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, I mean, is, is something lost uh, when an audience doesn't have the sort of, uh, sort of, as you say, the student approach to, to any kinds of music? I mean, specifically, I'm thinking, as I was saying before, pop music, it's so easy to dismiss it out of hand. Uh, but you sort of lose all of the, the cultural context, the social context that you're talking about. And I find that you maybe don't have that uh, as much in other genres, that there is always a kind of deference, but never a deference to, for, for pop music. Is something lost in that? Well, because pop music wasn't always popular music. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, other styles of music had the distinction of being popular. Uh, opera was very, very popular in its time, and opera tunes were kind of the hits of their day. And you know, in the in the sort of salon world of nineteenth-century music, which is kind of my specialty lately, when I've been working with my string quartets and my album Chambers, we kind of touched on this era of of people making music at home, and this idea of music for for your living room and the sort of first sign of sort of intimate music making uh, and at the same time, the birth of musical celebrities. So, you know, you can't have a Kanye West um, without, you know, a friend's list or a Richard Wagner before them, sort of the cult of personality around the genius and all this stuff. So there is precedent for sort of music, just not being judged as either of high or low cultural value, but just hits. And those hits were either Mendelssohn piano pieces that maybe um, girls would play because girls weren't generally becoming professional musicians. But as amateurs, they, they played all these nice little, what I would call piano miniatures from composers like Mendelssohn. Um, and uh, very similar to what I do on solo piano, for example. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, there are many examples of, of sort of some musical style being in this same situation. It, it, if, if people are concerned with cultural value to an overt extent, I mean, they're just cutting off their options for musical joy. And it's just a bit sad, but I understand it. It's, it's sort of a human <laughs> instinct, I guess, to sort of want to know what you're listening to and have context. But um, I, I do feel that once you liberate yourself from a prism of, of uh, you know, you know, in Germany, they have, um, they have, they have words for this. There's U music and E music. And the U music, like the letter U, mm-hmm. stands for Unterhaltung, which is entertainment. So that's like low culture, U music. And E music is Ernst music, which means sincere music. And so there's an inherent bias against entertainers. Essentially, they're saying there's sincere music and then there's the other stuff, you know? And, um, and so it means that anyone who has the instinct of an entertainer must be insincere. I think this is a this is a very very limited attitude, and 
you know, I have fun playing with those codes here in Germany with the platform I have here to show people that um, I, I'm not just out, uh, you know, it's for their own good. They will feel more musical joy if they liberate themselves from that, you know. I'm only on a mission for them to, to forget about those barriers only in as much as they will find musical joy, you know. It's not a political statement. I just want people to have more fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, the Germans always have the best terms, eh? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, you talk about uh, social and cultural context. And I think if you listen to a lot of pop music now, there is a big movement for, of, of sort of going back to the 80s specifically, getting all those synth, uh, synth noises. Uh, I think even more of that, that syncopation than, than we're sort of used to. Um, can you give any context as to why that might be, why we're trying to go back to specifically those 80 sounds, those like escape from New York sort of, uh, sort of synths? Well, I would say that the 80s have been omnipresent. You know, the 80s had quite a few shades. You know, there's a big gulf between already, like, the Thompson Twins and the Smiths mm -hmm. and the Cure and Whitney Houston. You know, and there's a lot that was going on in the 80s, and different parts of the 80s have always been coming back, mostly because a lot of musicians who grew up in the 80s are now of adult music-making age, so it's kind of normal that those obsessions kind of come back because musicians just tend to go back to what they know and, and, and what they came up with. So, um, you know, there's always an endless variation. Lately, I would say the 80s that has been coming back has been a, a lot of reverb um, and a lot of the idea that musical space should kind of be reverberant. Um, and this is an aesthetic choice that strongly contrasts with sort of uh, other times that came before where you have the tendency to want music to be more dry and um, and and so that's something that seems to recall the 80s because we now listen back to 80s music and we hear, for example, these doo -doo 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 -doo, these kind of tom toms with reverb on them, you know, think Miami Vice theme, mm -hmm. um, and and this style which would normally make us laugh has somehow come back wearing a, wearing a serious costume all of a sudden, <laughs> um, as if we forgot the lessons that made us laugh, you know, and so. This is how music works in cycles, and things come back and mean something different. So I'm not sure why this reverb is there right now um, and why music has generally gotten slower and slower. Most rap now is, you know, 99% of it is very, very, very slow. Um, in as much as the rappers are rapping even faster on slower beats, they're going into double time. And so the beats, therefore, have gotten slower and slower. And you have a lot of reverb and a lot of 80s, colder darker sounds uh, in Drake's music, for example, you hear a lot of that in synthesizers. So I'm not sure what you were referring to with the New York 80s thing, but all I can say is little parts of the 80s have always been coming back, as far as I can remember. Um, you know, Electro Clash was already the beginning of the return of the 80s. Fisher Spooner, Tiga, Peaches, um, and me to a certain extent. That was already associated a bit with the 80s at that time in a different way. And then, you know, then, what is that, what they call it? Crystal Castles came along. And, you know, so, I don't know, there's always variations on the theme. It's a little bit like saying disco comes back. Yeah, well, it comes back every couple of years, you know, whether it's a Bruno Mars song or a Daft Punk song. Well, it's kind of coming back. And then it was Jamiroquai 10 years ago, and then mm -hmm. it was um, uh, Scissor Sisters brought it back like seven years ago. So in any year, you can find the return of disco or the return of the 80s. That's just because all the musicians who grew up in the 70s and 80s, my age, a little bit younger, maybe a little bit older, are inevitably going to come back to the era of music in which we fell in love with music. What do you think makes for a bad pop song? Well, if, if the listener doesn't like it, I mean, I, I don't mean to be, I don't, I don't want to be 
don't want to be cute about that, but really it's just, you know, liking something is its own validation. That's for sure. So um, mm. here we're really in just taste territory, you know, but for me, a bad song um, or a song that could not ever really succeed as a pop song would probably not be catchy, uh, would probably have a, a structure that was too complicated to sort of get addicted to on first listen. Uh, those are two things I can say that, you know, there are exceptions. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody has a really complicated structure and, you know, there's always a counterintuitive um, exception for every rule I could state. But generally, yeah, it should probably be catchy and um, and probably be addictive. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Thanks Gonzo. Call her a one-hit wonder? Maybe not. Carly Rae Jepsen's third studio record, Emotion, is out now, three years after the album Kiss came out. That album had a little track by the name of Call Me Maybe. You may have heard of it. It's a massive smash. We're in the studio today with Max Mertens, who wrote a profile of Carly Rae Jepsen in a recent issue of McLean's. Thanks for joining us, Max. Thank you guys for having me. So let's start from the beginning. So Carly Rae Jepsen had a huge, huge, huge hit. You may have heard of it. got to where we're at right now with Carly Rae Jepsen's career. Um, yeah, well, Call Me Maybe um, was was a massive uh, universal hit. Um, I wouldn't go so as far as to say, like, zeitgeist kind of defining, um, you know, when you've got everybody from Weird Al to Katy Perry to, I believe I saw somewhere Colin Powell referenced it in a speech or something um, while he was still doing his thing. Uh so yeah, it was it was a massive song, um, and at the same time though, the the record actually didn't end up uh, doing that well. Um, it sold two hundred and ninety two thousand copies, I believe. This is our album Kiss. This is our album Kiss. Yeah, in twenty twelve, um, and I think that's you know when you have a hit that big, and then the album kind of tanked. Um, it's it's a bit of a di- weird situation to be in because. Obviously, the label was happy with how well the song did, um, but the album, she wasn't able to get too many other singles off of that album. And uh, so, yes, I mean, she took a lot of time off. Um, she kind of she kind of disappeared as much as you can disappear doing a, doing a Broadway show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she was working on that. Uh, she was in a production of Cinderella, and she was working on that. Do you think that changed anything for her, like doing Cinderella? Was that, was that really a hideaway? Well, yeah, because like she said to me, one of the, the things she said to me that I thought really stood out was that, um, as silly as it is to say, no one cares that you have a global pop hit when you're on Broadway. Right. Yeah. You know, you still have to get out there uh, six, uh, three. I think she did three shows a week, something like that. Yeah, it's um, a totally different community. Like, I was yeah, it's at a, those YouTube comments, and it was it was all these like show like the Broadway people being like, "Oh, she's not as good as so and so, someone I'd never heard of." But, yeah, like, in the Broadway community, and obviously, like probably a tougher audience yeah. too, I would think, like than than her than her core demographic uh, when she put out Kiss. Um, I just I was thinking of like Birdman, you know, and how tough like theater critics have a reputation to uh, have. Um, but yeah, I think she learned. I think she learned a lot about. Um, she learned a lot about how to, about performance um, and like strengthening her voice and and also just like having the stamina to do those shows like back to back to back. 
And yeah, and then this album, this album was supposed to come out at the beginning of the year, and she she really took her time with it. I, I think a lot of people were, I mean, fans are always very impatient, um, but I think a lot of people were surprised that it took as long as it did to get this album out. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's mostly due to the fact that she recorded over 250 songs. Mm-hmm. And, um, and her editing process was... Uh, she went into she went into she took a long time with the editing process and she was constantly rewriting and rewriting um, and scrapping stuff. There's so many there's so many songs like she she told me she could have put out a double album, uh, 40 like 40 some songs. But the label, you know, the label wouldn't have thought much of that. So so, so you've heard the record. Uh, do you think that that all of that stuff, the, the taking three years, the, you know, edit the deep editing process that you went to it? Do you think that really paid off? Yeah, because I think the album is really cohesive as a whole. Um, it's twelve songs, you know. I think that's that's pretty much a standard for your um, for your big name pop album. I think not to compare it to Taylor Swift's album, but I think that's I think that also had twelve, fourteen songs probably tops. Um, and then I think like like I was saying earlier, I think the I think a lot of the best songs are, are the bonus songs, um, but I think those are also the songs that sees her taking a bit more risk um, and I can understand why those were sort of relegated to bonus tracks. Yeah what I sort of noticed when I listened to it this morning was that there were I thought maybe three categories of songs or genres on the album. One was the standard generic pop song or catchy pop song like like the Call Me Maybe type song, but it was, um, what was her hit from this year? I really, 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 really like you. Um, And then there were a few songs that sort of resembled that song, and then there were a few more housey type tracks, and I liked those the most. Like, if you know what I Come here to dance. Yeah, yeah I, I I feel the same way. Um, and I think the interesting thing is like from all the you know the critics that I've been talking to, and it's the world that I'm in. It's kind of insular, you know. You, you sometimes you forget about like the big picture and like what the fans actually think of it. Um, like I don't personally like I have re- like younger cousins and relatives, but I like I'm not interacting with anybody on a regular basis. That's like in the teen like tween demographic i guess but like just talking to other music critics i think it's interesting that no one has there doesn't seem to be one um like standout favorite song like across the board mm-hmm. like everyone likes a different song i think that's actually what's kind of good about it which sounds like it almost isn't but i think that the first time i heard call me maybe i think i was in a grocery store and or i saw it as a meme uh in the internet about men putting call me maybe on business cards to give to women as a like hey i like you call me you know what i mean right and so that's how much of a phenomenon the song was and it seemed to me that she was at a perhaps she was at a crossroads of becoming that kind of pop star that's really extremely overly produced and just like an image kind of like how what it was like 15 years ago with your britneys and your christinas and it was just such like a star maker machinery that people kind of got tired with that look and but i know with this this new album uh, she has producers on there like Blood Orange, who produced the Solange album. She has one of the uh, Vampire Weekend peeps. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so, it, and she wrote a lot of those songs, and she was really. And I, I remember in your piece how you spoke to her, and she 
expressed how important that was to her and how she had that. She had a conversation with Cindy Lauper who said the very yep. same thing. Yep. And I think uh, kind of in the way that Taylor Swift writes a lot of her songs and she has a lot of control over the way that her music is put together and that and and that her how her image is perceived. So I think that that's kind of what kind of gave Carly Rae or is giving Carly Rae a little more um, cred with this album. Like she's really taking charge of what her sound is like as opposed to being swept away in the fame machine. Yeah, and and she the thing to th- the thing I think with her is that she did write, she did she had a hand in writing every single song. There wasn't a, there's not a song on that album that she didn't at least write part of. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, like she really I think with this album it's it's more cohesive than than Kiss because um well for starters there's no like the like Kiss had like a Justin Bieber song. Um what's that band Owl City? Yeah. Um, I think it was just one guy. Was it? Yeah. Was it? Anyway, so like Mr. there were those those collaborations, and on this album, there's no other featured vocalist. Like Sia, there's Sia, um, like if you listen to the beginning of Boy Problems, mm-hmm. Sia's on that. Um, but I think that was I think that was part of her. Uh, I think that was part of her goals for the album was to have it be like independently hers, and she did bring in all these these interesting collaborators. Um, but they, but she made them. She really made them work for her. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Max. Thank you. Thanks. Well, it's August, uh, and as you know, that means the end of summer. Uh, so, what time better than now to boldly predict? And by predict, I mean call belatedly the song of the summer. Guys, what were you listening to? This summer, what was your jams? What were your jams? I think my favorite cheerleader. Oh my okay. god! So, <laughs> Ju- <laughs> Julia and I have the same song of summer. Uh, you probably know it. It's called Cheerleader. It goes, Oh, I think that I found myself a cheerleader. You know that we can put clips in the show, right? <laughs> okay. It's better when Emma sings. All right. We'll just well we'll play a clip right now anyway. Do you need me? Do you think I'm pretend? Do I make you feel like cheating? I'm like no. very interesting backstory because even though it is even though it is a song of summer this year it's actually an older song what do you think julia before i was interrupted by emma what i was going to say was that i'm I, the reason i'm so fond of that song is because as emma mentioned it came out in 2012 and um which is the first time that i heard it i i used to live in uh london and i have a friend that lives there still who's like a uh, a club kid and every once in a while he would send me a mix of what he's listening to these days all of his deep house tracks and he sent me that uh, mix with that song on it a few years ago so i have fond memories of it and then when i heard it all remixed at the gym or wherever you hear your summer songs i was like oh this song i'm really glad it's getting new legs so that's why it's it's my pick it's for nostalgic reasons but also it's just so darn catchy Emma? I like cheerleader for a very different reason. I consider myself a club kid also. I don't really know what that means, but well, then why you can mean if you're a kid who likes to go to the club. That's you. Okay. Mm. So I've recently become a DJ. My DJ name is Craig Mann. It's a long story. But anyway, I had my first gig last weekend at the Libertine, a bar in Toronto. And uh, Emma's lifelong dream. Yeah, and it's been a lifelong dream dream of mine. I do mostly house music, but my last song that I closed with was Cheerleader. And everybody loved it and it's at a bar that's that's very 
trendy and underground and there's no sign out front and so you, you know think no one in there is going to listen to top 40 no one will like Emma's it. a bona fide hip person mm. but I love cheerleader not only because it's catchy but because it's the kind of catchy summer song that everybody likes even if they don't want to admit it it just fills your heart with joy it makes you feel good it's a feel good message it's great wonderful. video full of sunshine just it, and it fills your heart with sunshine too yeah so that's my song of summer and me too uh, well, my song of the summer. So I, when I think about the song of the summer, I'm always thinking about what song would I want to listen to, like with the windows down, it's very sunny, you're out like driving and stuff. And uh, I somehow spent this entire summer not driving a single time. So this will just be uh, from the off the cuff f- from the fertile highway of my mind. Oh, I imagined this is what I did. I listened to a number of songs. I was like, mm, would I would I drive to this? The answer was yes. I would drive to basically any song. But uh, I think uh, I don't want to be this person. But I had like two or three songs that I really oh, liked. Adrian, those aren't the rules. I know. One though was kind of in a cheerleader mold. Uh, is Drake's Hotline Bling. I think that's uh, a great song. It samples uh, a Mario track, which I think I really enjoy uh, personally as a, a video game loving man. Um, the other song is the Jamie XX Young Thug song. Uh, There's going to be good times. Uh, that's just a catchy song. And like what I think unites all three of these songs is that it's got that like sun spackled sort of reggae tropical house kind of vibe to all of these songs uh, that I think works really well in the summertime. Uh, and the other one is a song uh, by the artist Now uh, called Inhale, Exhale. Uh, I'll play a clip off of that right now, but it's off her uh, EP February 15th. Uh, and it's the first song of that. And I really like the song. This is the song I probably, of the three songs, listen to the most. Uh, I think it's super catchy. Uh, this summer very different from summers of recent past where there wasn't like one glaring big hit like we had fancy from Iggy Azalea last mm. year and I think Blurred Lines was the yeah. year before Get Lucky Get Lucky was 2013 yeah and this year it's clearly Funk. cheerleader well I mean mm, I think okay. that's true in our hearts but I don't think everybody would agree with us in the way that everybody would likely agree with those uh, song of the summer I'm hoping it's because stars we have of, like, of yesteryear I'm hoping it's because we have like song of the summer fatigue because I don't know why we even why do we even talk about songs? It's not like oh, we talk about songs do. of the winter, you know? I don't know. Something to What's do, your right song there. of the winter? Is it any sad folk song? It's usually Simon and Garfunkel, to be honest, yeah, there every you go. year. See, every year, song of the winter. But Van so, Morrison, B. For me, it's just house all the time. So. <laughs> sure. It's summer in Emma's heart 12 months a year. Well, that's it for this week. Our summer schedule is over, so our next episode will come next week. Check it out, as always, at mcclaims.ca. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and BeyondPod. It would be great and helpful to us if you wrote us a review or a comment on iTunes. You can also tell us your thoughts about what we talked about with a comment on the site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast on The Hill or our books podcast, The Bibliopod. You can also hear some of our columnists, like our very own Emma Title, read their work in McLean's Voices. Those podcasts are on iTunes and Stitcher. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title. You can follow Julia at Julia Del J. And me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.